Now, when Jesus heard that the Pharisees had been told he was making and baptizing more followers than John, though it was not Jesus himself, but his followers who baptized, he left Judea and set out again for Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria, and on his way, he came to a Samaritan town called Shechem, near the plot of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, being tired after his journey, sat down beside the source, just as he was. It was then about midday. A woman of Samaria came to drink water, and Jesus said to her, Give me some to drink. For his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it, replied the Samaritan woman, that you, who are a Judean, ask water from a Samaritan woman like me? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. If you knew the gift of God, replied Jesus, and who it is that is saying to you, give me some water, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You have no bucket, sir, and the well is deep, she said. From where do you have this living water? Surely you are not greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and used to drink from it himself and his sons and his cattle. All who drink of this water, replied Jesus, will be thirsty again. But whoever once drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst any more. But the water that I will give him will become a spring welling up from within him, a source of life through all the ages. Give me this water, sir, said the woman, so that I may not be thirsty, nor have to come all the way here to draw water. Go and call your husband, said Jesus, and then come back. I have no husband, answered the woman. You are right in saying, I have no husband, replied Jesus, for you have had five husbands, and the man with whom you are now living is not your husband. In saying that, you have spoken the truth. I see, sir, that you are a prophet, exclaimed the woman. It was on this mountain that our ancestors worshipped, and yet you Judeans say that the proper place for worship is in Jerusalem. Believe me, replied Jesus, a time is coming when it will be neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem that you will worship the Father. You Samaritans do not know what you worship. We know what we worship for salvation comes from the Judeans. But a time is coming. Indeed, it is already here when the true worshipers will worship the Father spiritually and truly, for such are the worshipers that the Father desires. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I know, answered the woman, that the anointed one, who is called the Christ, is coming, when once he has come, he will tell us everything. I am that one, Jesus said to her, I who am speaking to you. So the woman, leaving her pitcher, went back to the town 
and said to the people, Come and see someone who has told me everything that I have done. Can he be the anointed one? And the people left the town and went to see Jesus. The word of God. So, my cultural lineage, which isn't necessarily separate from my spiritual lineage, is that I'm Irish Catholic on my dad's side and Polish Catholic on my mom's side, I suppose a Union Democrat on both sides. Um, And the Catholicism that we practiced and that was very prevalent on the south side of Chicago in the 60s and 70s was the Dorothy Day Catholicism of the Catholic Workers' Social Justice Movement. And so somewhat of a theopraxis, a theology of action rather than beliefs. There were strong women on both sides of my family. And I'm also working at raising strong women, my niece and my daughter and other people. My dad was in the first class of lay deacons in the Catholic Church in 1976. And my mom and my grandmother prayed the rosary every day, multiple times a day. What's also true about my lineage is that there was multi-generational experiences of family and community and cultural violence. Both my parents grew up with violence and alcoholism, as did their parents in the old country and in the process of immigrating to the United States. The first time I ran away from home, I was five. And I was trying to get to my grandmother's house because she lived in the next parish over. I know that my grandmother was a different mom than she was a grandma, which I think is true for most of us. But for me, she was always kind and always present and always willing to sit and hold your hand. The first time I tried to die on purpose, I was nine. And yet, my parents were Chicago public school teachers. When I was very young, both my mom and dad were gym teachers, K-8 gym teachers. And at the time, they actually met at Chicago Teachers College, which isn't called that anymore. But at the time, in order to be a gym teacher, a PE teacher, you had to be licensed in every subject K-8, <laughs> because the gym teachers were the ones who were the substitutes. And so they were brilliant, they were learned, and they were elementary students, teachers who their students and colleagues generally loved. Every summer we went to the lake, and we had a community of people that we called our lake cousins. 
And many of them were people that my parents went to teacher's college with, and then people that they were connected to. And to this day, they're still our family. We were very connected. I went to St. Dennis um, Church in school. My parents were Chicago public school teachers, and they paid to have us go to the Catholic school, which was connected to our, to our church. And in the church that I grew up in, there is, uh, some of you who heard me preach before on Mary, I had a picture here of one of the large metal statues. There was Joseph who had um, a hammer uh, and tools of his trade. And there was a statue of Mary. And unlike anything else I have pretty much seen almost anywhere, she's standing with her with her two fingers up in a teaching posture. And so I actually grew up seeing every single Sunday and some days of the week and first Fridays, <laughs> an image of a powerful woman, a mother teaching. We had Christmas traditions, including on Christmas Eve every year, we had a tiny little uh, manger, and my mom always made a cake, and we sang happy birthday to the baby Jesus. And we had, uh, when we were really little, we would, we would, so I think so my parents could get us in bed, because of course we wanted to stay up and see all the festivities. Um, we would have to take a bath and then go to bed, and when we were in the bathtub every year, the doorbell would ring. And especially if there was snow, which at the time in Chicago, there was almost always snow, my dad would walk backwards down the steps and then back up. So it looked like this, the, the L's footprints just started in the middle of the walkway and ended on the stairs. And we got one gift on Christmas Eve that tided us over until the next morning. We played sports. Actually, my sister and I played sports, and my brothers were in musical theater, as was my sister. There was lots of adventure. My Parents both supported us in being the people who we came in the world to be. And the first time I ran away, I was five. So one of the theological texts from my childhood, which was a first communion gift to me, is right here. And it's a little Hallmark book, of all things, um, written by Barbara Burrow and illustrated by Mary Hamilton. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when my Polish grandfather, whenever he would read us a book, he would start with the title and who wrote it, and then he would say, copyright, 1968. He was a joker. If you've ever wondered where God lives, if sometimes he seems far away in his house in heaven, 
look around you. God is everywhere. You see his face in a woodland flower. You feel his touch in the gentle rain. You hear his voice in the murmuring winds. Even in small secret places, he is always near. His miracles are as small as a snowflake and as great as a sky full of stars. God brings the spirit of joy to your home and the spirit of peace and thanksgiving where you worship. When you speak to God, he guides you. He is your strength when things don't go right and your comfort when you are lonely or sad. When you are kind and thoughtful, you are helping to do God's work. And in return, he sends you the gift of happiness. God is in every one of us. He is in our friends who like us just the way we are. He is in our parents who help us grow up and love us always. God is in those who think and act as we do. And in those who may be different. God is love, and he lives everywhere there is love. Most of all, God lives in your heart. So anyone who knows me or has heard me preach, I don't think I ever stray very far from that. <laughs> It speaks both of imminence, or the God within, and transcendence, the God of everywhere that's beyond. When I was in high school, um, I, I pretty much left the church, but I didn't really leave the theology. And as many of you know who've heard me preach before, I never left Mary, or maybe it's probably more to fair to say Mary never left me. When I, after I graduated in, from college in 1984, yes, 40 years ago, <laughs> I got sober in February of 1985. <clears throat> and when I get sober, one of, the, one of the steps is, you know, we have to find a power greater than ourselves. And when I thought about it, I, I basically believed that there were all kinds of powers greater than me. I mean, waves, come on, right? Trees, all kinds of powers greater than me. But the thing is, I basically was pretty sure it didn't have anything to do with me. So as I stayed sober and had to keep figuring out how to do this, how to get help, in the 80s and 90s, I kind of did a lot of Celtic, women-centered, earth-based uh, goddess spirituality, uh, which made sense uh, for me as a woman and for the time. Um, there, was a, there was a journal that came out monthly called Women of Power, uh, which was uh, a journal of... Uh, feminist theology and uh, women's practices of spirituality in many different places in the world. 
And so I read an enormous amount of feminist theology of the 90s to the 2000s. And in the 90s, I started reading, as I'm guessing many of you did, um, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan and, and the folks from the Jesus Seminar. And it made a lot of sense to me because it's basically the things that I had been telling people for years. Kind of like, I think I'm a little bit more like your Jesus than you are sometimes. An outcast. Social justice warrior. I just learned from Debbie not too long ago. I guess I kind of knew this, but um, it shocked me the first time I heard somebody say that Catholics weren't Christians. Um, I was like, what? That doesn't even make any sense to me. Um, but we didn't think all that well of y'all either, so um, <laughs> to, be, to be honest. Um, and that what we practiced was the social gospel. Um, and I thought, yeah, that's about right. That, that works for me, um, whatever that means. Um, in the late 90s, I was introduced to yoga and Buddhism. And I practiced yoga first for about eight years um, while I was learning the tenets of Buddhism. I started Vipassana, which is a sitting meditation, an insight meditation. And, and um, one of my favorite descriptions of it by Bhante Gunaratana, who's the, the lead monk in Sri Lanka, um, is that meditation is not to calm your mind. It's to know your mind. And so I started practicing that in the mid-2000s. Um, in 2007, I was fortunate enough to go teach in Sri Lanka. And for a while, um, my partner Janet and my daughter Zosha were with me, and um, at one point, I mean, you know, you're traveling in a country where you've never been before, and all kinds of things are happening, and um, it can be kind of stressful. And I remember one day very clearly, Janet said, I just want to let you know that your practice of meditation is helping us all right now. <laughs> I thought, that's worth it. So during that time, I continued learning and practicing many Eastern spiritual traditions. In August of 2010, my dad died. And something really shifted. Um, I was super angry about Christians and Christianity and Catholicism and empire and all the things we're still angry about here. Um, but when my dad died, and I noticed, I just, my mom had, and dad had been married for almost 55 years. My mom went from living with her parents to living with my father. And I could not imagine the profound, deep grief. And all of a sudden, all the things, all the violence, all the, all the ways that I wasn't paid attention to, and a lot of times not even liked in my family, 
all the ways I wanted my mom to be different kind of started to be like, I just, it just doesn't really matter anymore. Not that it never mattered or it doesn't matter in some ways, but wanting my mom to be different didn't matter in the same way anymore. So when my dad died in August of 2010, it was about, maybe about October. I was looking for books about radical Christianity. And guess what I found? From Stone to Living Word, written by our own Reverend Debbie Blue. And when I looked at the back and it said, she started a church in St. Paul, I said, wait a minute. (laughs) That's just 15 minutes from here. And I'm from Chicago, so I go over the river quite easily. And the first time I came to House of Mercy, it was the second Sunday in December of 2010. And in that summer, well, I had a couple conversations with Debbie, and the very first one I had, and some of you may have heard me say this before, the very first conversation I had with Debbie, I said, "Um, I am most definitely not a Christian. And she said, okay. So I'm wondering why you're talking to me. Um, and that was the beginning of an amazing relationship that is very much a part of my life and my spiritual path. In that summer, I recommitted to this part of my spiritual heritage in this community and with this community. So what does that make me? Well, what it makes me, I think, is a Catholic Buddhist pagan. A lifelong spiritual seeker. A seeker of truth, a seeker of freedom, a seeker of light in life and wisdom. So the reading we heard tonight about the woman at the well This is from the Gospel of John. And like Mark said last week, John is big on symbols. And the well by which the woman sits is supposed to be the well of Jacob. And there's lots of wells in the Hebrew Testament. They're all over the place. After Debbie wrote The Birds of the Bible, I said, why don't you write a book called The Wells of the Bible? And she said, I think you should write a book (laughs) about the wells of the Bible. And Russell said he was going to write a book about the worms of the Bible, which he has not done yet either. (laughs) But what was happening at the well there was the writer of John was kind of reading back into the history of Jesus the the Samaritan mission of the time. Because in John's time, in the time that this was written, there there was a community of Christian Jews and there was a community of Christian Samaritans. And there was who's who belongs. 
And so this was a really important piece to have as part of the story of Jesus to say, we all belong. This is, the, this is a, a, a deep theological conversation. Um, and the conversation is both symbolic and religious. And one of the... Um, it becoming a story of infidelity of a woman having five husbands. Now, that would have never been true of Jewish women or Samaritan women of the time. And that was a story um, in, in, uh, in, in another, gospel, another gospel story where the Pharisees were testing Jesus and they were saying, well, what if a woman's husband dies? Then basically, who does she belong to? And Jesus turned that upside on its head, too. And so the five husbands, the woman and the five, five husbands, the five husbands actually referred to Samaria's infidelity following the return of the northern tribes from Assyrian captivity. Because they accepted the worship of the false gods of five foreign tribes. So Jesus uses that familiar adultery, idolatry metaphor to call Samaria to embrace the worship of the one God in spirit and in truth. And he's, 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 she says, we worship here, you worship there. And he says, that's not what's going to, that's not what it's going to be in the end. could have easily said, God is everywhere. (laughs) He's here and he's there, and we worship here. The other thing that I think is so powerful, and those of you who know my love of Mary Magdalene um, might have seen this coming, (laughs) but the Samaritan woman left her water jar at the well just like the other apostles left their fishing nets in their boats or their tax stalls to announce the good news of Jesus to their villages. And so the woman at the well was called to apostleship and laid down everything. I think, I don't remember where the story of Nicodemus is, but it's in very big contrast to what happens in that situation where he slinks off in the night because he doesn't want to do, let let go of everything. And so all were converted in the village because of the word of the woman who testified. And then Jesus stayed there for two days to teach. So this person who experienced exclusion, a woman, was sent to the other, the Samaritans, to invite them into community. Very similar to the story of Mary Magdalene, who was called to tell the story of Jesus in her community. And so we have in the book, in many different places, where the women are called to teach their own communities. And then the men are called to go out into the world 
to teach what they've learned from the women in their own communities of Jesus and his message. So we can't exclude others from our lives or from our love. If our love is not universal, it isn't the love of Jesus. So today, I bet you didn't know how I was going to get all three of these things together in one sermon, but today we celebrate Candomas, as our beloved Russell would say. Um, and Candomas is the feast of Bridget or Breed, which is part of my Irish pagan roots, and whose color, like Mary, is blue. She's the protector of hearth and home. And this is a fire festival in ancient Ireland. Fire, what an invention. <laughs> Bigger than the wheel, I would say. But fire maintains a community. It was also a festival of welcoming the return of the light and the beginning of spring. And what was happening in places like Ireland in, the, in this part of, 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 the, of the year was the birth of the lambs. The flow of mother's milk. Nourishment for the health of the community. Starting anew, grounded in the old. So Canamas, and then the Christian tradition, is the blessing of the candles. It's bringing the light of this community, of the community in which we worship in spirit and faith and connection and love, bringing that blessing into our homes to nourish us as we move into a new season, to be grounded in the old, in the ritual. It's one of the things that I love the most about being Catholic. I mean, you couldn't spit without hitting a ritual in Catholicism. So as we move into our new season, we both, with both an acknowledgement of and a commitment to this community and to each other and to ourselves. It's an ancient Celtic practice or belief um, that intention is carried in the wick. And so when we light a candle, it's putting our intention as we light the candle that that's carried in the wick. And so any candle that's lit off of one candle absorbs the intention of the lighter of the candle. Many times when I set up the candles back there and I light the first candle, I have an intention of open-heartedness and love. And we all add our intention as time goes on too. In the, in the Hague, Interestingly enough, um, The Hague is uh, one of my heroes growing up in Chicago, um, is Jane Addams. Um, and Jane Addams is known as, um, well, in 1915, she was known as the most dangerous woman in America. Um, 
But she was the starter that one of the people who founded the Peace Party, the Women's Peace Party, um, and was uh, encouraging people to not vote again for Woodrow Wilson because he entered us into World War I. And the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, officially, which officially started in 1919, actually has its roots in the Women's Peace Party and the International Congress of Women in The Hague in 1915. And so, and it is the oldest continuously um, active peace organization in the United States. In 1915, Jane Addams wrote a book called Peace and Bread in Times of War, which is scarily relevant today. And that most dangerous woman in America won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931. She was the first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. But in the Netherlands, in, in The Hague, um, there is the world peace flame. And that flame, that flame is comprised of seven other flames from the Netherlands, from Canada. There was a flame lit in Canada um, in a sunrise ceremony. In India, they, took, they lit a, a flame from Gandhi's memorial, which had been, and this was in 1999, had been, and Gandhi's memorial has been lit continuously since 1947. In Australia, Aboriginal elders lit a flame. In the United States at what, we, what our government calls Pikes Peak, the Ute people, or the people of Sun Mountain, refer to it as Sun Mountain, and they lit a flame there. And in the Middle East, in Bahrain, which is the most religiously diverse nation in the world, there was a flame lit. And all of those flames traveled, and you can take a live flame on a plane. They do it every time for the Olympics. And all of those flames came together in Wales, another Celtic country. And in 1999, all of those flames together created the world peace flame, which was then moved in 2002 to The Hague. So this candle was given to me about 20 years ago, and it was lit from a candle that was lit at the peace flame in The Hague. And I don't burn it all the time because I want to bring it to things like this. an offer in this community that I love, all that has gone into creating who we are and what this flame represents. Mm -hmm.